Psalm chapter 9 says, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their names forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruin. Their cities were you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praise to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. That I may recount all your praises. That in the gates of the daughter of Zion, I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. And the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. It's the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are an ever-present help. We ask that you would be with us now. We call on you and we pray that you would show us who you are from your word. That you would help us to love you and help us to obey you. Lord, I ask that you would do all of this by letting us taste the joy of your goodness. Even from Exodus. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Have you ever looked at the Bible and been baffled? you ever opened to a text of scripture, read, maybe you're following a plan and you read a, a chapter or two chapters and wondered, what on earth does that have to do with my life? What does it even mean? Why is it even in there? Well, at first glance today, our text from Exodus 22 is like that. It may seem more confusing than instructive. And I want to encourage you to turn there with me uh, In Exodus, you can find it page 63 in those blue Bibles that are all around the room here or on page 74 of the red large print. And follow along with me. 
There are cultural rules in this passage that may seem offensive to us, and there are other things that may seem completely irrelevant. But here is a unifying theme. As Chris read in Psalm chapter 9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. He is a stronghold in times of trouble. And David, the writer of that psalm, knows that to be true. And so he claims that as he prays to God and asks for him to continue doing that. He's not in denial. He doesn't, he doesn't think that somehow there are no poor people in Israel that righteousness has finally triumphed. What he's saying is God is faithful. He has done this in the past and he will do it. And so he calls on God to be that stronghold for the oppressed. And you can see in Exodus chapter 20, 22, the God that we worship loves the weak and the poor. And this chapter shows some very practical ways that he protects them and guards against evil in Israel. The outline, if you have your bulletin today, I have three points of it. And you can see that it begins with loving the weak. And at the center of my message is a small section on loving God. And then it ends as it began with loving the weak or loving the poor. And from the beginning of this message, we should remember the words of the Apostle John. This is from the book of First John at the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5. John writes, if anyone says he loves God and hates his brother, he is a liar. And... By this we know that we love the children of God. So don't just assume you love, love people because you think you do and, and in your own mind you, you're helping them in the way that matters. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God. How? When we love God and keep his commandments. Right loving begins with loving the Lord and worshiping him. Loving God is always at the center of truly loving the poor. Or, as you keep that in mind, you may think about the big picture of Exodus. How God rescues people from slavery and leads them to a place of joyful worship. He is their provider. He blesses them with good things and they love him. And that's the end of the book. This passage in the middle of the book demonstrates that we are unfit for worship if we do not love the weak and needy in very practical ways. We are unfit for worship if we do not love the weak and the needy. And we'll see in our text both the severity of God's justice and the kindness of his compassion. God's rules may seem judgmental if you have broken them. But we are here this morning worshiping the Lord Jesus on Sunday because we have come to God through his shed blood. And by grace and mercy we can be forgiven. And so these sins are not held against us. And we are not looking at Exodus as Israelites trying to set up a nation. We are looking at Exodus to learn the heart of God. To understand who our Savior is. And it's my prayer this morning that we will love God more because we see his heart through these rules. So to begin, look with me at Exodus chapter 22, starting in verse 16. God speaking through Moses says, 
If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. This section shows three sets of rules. The penalty for violating an unmarried woman. The penalty for witchcraft and idolatry. And the care of foreigners and the poor. And if this list of rules seems random, remember that all of these commandments relate to the Ten Commandments that were given just a few chapters earlier. The case of a man seducing a woman violates, you shall not commit adultery. You might think, no, there's no marriage here, and you'd be right. So God is giving a rule that clarifies the sanctity of marriage includes what non-married people do. Then, each of these that require, each of the three rules that require the death penalty all violate, you shall have no other gods before me. And finally, the rules relating to the lending and fair treatment of foreigners, orphans, and widows all relate to, you shall not steal and you shall not covet. It might be tempting to think, I'm not stealing, I'm just doing good business. But God is demonstrating that you must protect the weak in your community. And even good business can be a form of theft if you are not taking care of the people who cannot meet their own needs. There are two things that I want to point out from these verses, and we will say a little bit about each of them. First, as is abundantly clear, sin always has consequences, sometimes very severe consequences. And second... God cares passionately for the weak and the powerless. And each of these demonstrates his passion to protect those who cannot protect themselves. And so to begin, we need to talk about the rules that God gave for a man who seduced a woman. A man in that situation was required to pay her family what was called a bride price, or perhaps another term for a bride price would be an engagement present that was given not to her, but to her family. And if her father consented, the young man had to marry her with all of the obligations that marriage brought on him to provide for her in every way. We may find the idea of a bride price paid to the bride's father somewhat offensive, 
But first, we should think of it in two ways that may help. Number one, all children, both men and women, worked in their parents' homes. And in actuality, men never left their parents' homes. They were not free from the obligation to care for elderly parents. In fact, when a young man married, he brought his wife to live as part of his father's household. Sons provided for their parents for their entire lives. And that arrangement ensured that the elderly were cared for when they were no longer able to work and provide for themselves. But when a young woman married, she left her family. So someone who had worked and helped meet the needs of the home was no longer there. And a bride price, at a minimum, was a small way of offsetting that loss. But it was much more than that. It wasn't a cold economic calculation. It also showed how much a young man loved his wife. That he would give so much to marry her. And in some sense, it's right to think of this in the same way as we think of engagement rings in our culture. We give very expensive rings when we propose marriage because we are saying, this is an expression of my love for you. And we want to give as generously as we can to show how great our love is. But a young man who slept with a woman without arranging marriage was saying, you don't really mean anything to me long term. I don't care about you, your family, or your future. And that might sound harsh, because we like to think of love as spontaneous. And our culture is very tolerant of unmarried sex. But the biblical picture of mature love is both passionate and wise. I don't ever want to minimize the reality that the Bible is very enthusiastic about passion within marriage. It's not that God hates passion and sex. It's that he loves wisdom and passion both. The Bible looks not just at youth and momentary pleasure, but all of life. And the Bible says that fools are led away by sexual passion. You are a fool if you do not think about all of life, but only care about a few moments. But it also praises the virtue of sexual passion within marriage and the joys of life together. So God does not prohibit sex outside of marriage because he hates passion. He prohibits it because it's short-sighted and harmful. Let me add this. This is very important. Some people may feel a, a sense of guilt and condemnation because this is, this is a rule and a law that, that is commonly broken. And so if you're here today and you are in some guilt, do not remain there. All of us are sinners here. And as I preach the virtue of remaining pure before marriage, there is grace for all of us and all of us need that grace but we also need to recognize why God put the rule in place. So in ancient Israel, a woman's whole life could be jeopardized by just a few minutes of passion. Apart from this law, there's no consequence at all for the man. He'll remain part of his father's household, one day take over the family business, with no consequences or ramifications. But for a young woman who had been impure, her chances of marrying 
were very diminished. And when her family aged to a point where they could no longer provide for themselves, she would find herself destitute with no children to help care for her in her old age and no income to meet her present needs. And so the law says that God required a man to provide for her through a bride price, even if her family forbade the marriage. Now, that's the second thing that we might find offensive. We don't like the idea that money changes hands when a woman gets married. We don't like the idea that a father could forbid a wedding like this. But think again of what is actually happening here. This rule is preventing an automatic marriage of a woman who had been taken advantage of. If God had said, you must marry her, she may be forced to marry a man who would be a terrible husband. And in reality, what this does is it ensures that she would be provided for even if that match would be detrimental. And so her material needs would be met even if she never married and she had the ability and freedom to not marry someone that would be bad for her. So God insists that women who could not provide for themselves in this culture and in this society, would be provided for. I believe in part it means that we should have incredible compassion on single mothers. Not just assuming that they get what they need from the state or from welfare programs, but that we should have kindness and compassion towards them and meet their needs, since we do not have rules like this in our society. God has a passion for providing for those who cannot provide for themselves. The next three rules, verses 18 through 20, seem surprising and totally disconnected, but they also show severe consequences for sin and God's desire to protect the entire community. So let me read those verses again. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death, and whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Sorcery, lying with an animal, and sacrificing to a false god were all punishable by death. That seems incredibly severe. All of those involved breaking the first commandment in gross ways. Sorcery tried to predict and manipulate the future apart from God. God was very clear. He would provide for his people both in terms of protection and in terms of material needs in crops and in livestock. If they kept his law, he would bless them. And if they appealed to sorcery instead, it demonstrated that they did not believe him and, in fact, that they trusted in something else and believed they could manipulate their own future. Lying with an animal was part of an ancient pagan ritual that was intended to persuade false gods to provide crops and livestock. It was intended to guarantee rich blessings and bounty that God himself had already promised. But instead, again, they turned from God's promise and trusted in an idol and violated the created order in such a disgusting way that God said this kind of break of faith was also punishable by death. This also breaks the first and the seventh commandment. Sacrificing to any false god in any other way, again, implied that God was either unwilling or unable to care for his people. 
And it obviously broke the first commandment. All of these, all three of these, are so serious that God says the penalty for them is death. What we have to remember, before the Ten Commandments, God introduces the law saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. God has promised his people that he is their source of life. We must remember that if we turn from our source of life, there is nothing else but death. And if his people tolerated these activities that are gross instances of idolatry, the community itself would bear God's judgment. The community itself would die. And so God imposed the death penalty for anyone who turned away from the God who redeemed and saved his people so that the nation would be preserved. These rules have been such obvious violations of God's law. It might seem surprising that God's next concern is with the treatment of foreigners and the poor. But here again, we see the severity of God's justice and the kindness of his heart. So look with me again at at the two sections that talk about sojourners and, and lending money to the poor. God says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. God reminds his people that they were foreigners in Egypt. They were sojourners. So as their nation is established, they must not mistreat foreigners who come into their land. And remember why Israel went to Egypt in the first place. There was a famine in Canaan, so they could not provide for their needs by working honestly where they lived. And so they moved to another country where they could work and where they could buy grain. They were mistreated in Egypt in part because they were foreigners. They were outsiders. And you imagine Egypt had all kinds of motivation for making sure that they preserved their nation and didn't allow their grain to be eaten by foreigners. God expects his people to remember what it was like to be a foreigner and an outsider. And he expects them to be generous and kind to outsiders who live in Israel. And I believe that there are broad applications for this today, both in politics and in the church. But very simply, it comes down to this. We should love people. It doesn't matter where they're from, what they look like, or how they talk. We must love people. Christians have a special obligation to do this because regardless of whether or not you happen to be a citizen of your native country, Peter writes and says, we are all aliens and foreigners. We should never feel completely at home, no matter what country we live in, because our citizenship is in heaven. God cares deeply about how we treat foreigners. Not only foreigners, but God also passionately insists that widows and orphans and the poor 
are to be well cared for. Notice the warning that he gives. This isn't just an empty platitude that you should do this because it's a good thing to do. God puts teeth to this commandment and says, verse 24, my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Now, now think for just a second. Fatherless children get in trouble. They're the people that are easy to say, you know, I'm not going to help in that situation. He made his bed. I'm going to let him lie in it. God expects us to look at people that need help and to picture our own wives and children. And then to help in the same way that we would want our families helped. It is easy to become hard-hearted and calloused and to tell people who ask for help, no. But with this warning, I believe God says, what if it were your family? Would you help your own family? Notice the warning for being cruel to the poor a few verses later. God says, if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. What God is saying is that we must never forget the grace that has been given to us. He had compassion on his people in Egypt and rescued them. What he is warning them is if they do not show that same compassion within their society... He will answer the prayers of the poor and oppressed in Israel just like he answered the prayers of the poor and oppressed in Egypt. And Israel will taste the same divine judgment that he poured out in Egypt. If we become cruel and unforgiving with each other, we will bring his judgment on us. The book of Hebrews makes that very plain for believers. God's compassion demands his justice. He will punish his own people when they are wrong because he is just. And all of these rules about loving your neighbor are part of what it means to love the Lord. So look with me at the next section, verses 28 to 31, that describe loving the Lord. God says, you must not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. You shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother. On the eighth day you shall give it to me. You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. After God has described the consequences for idolatry and a ruthless sort of business mentality that takes advantage of the poor and the orphan and the widow, that continues to put yourself ahead of others, God then shifts and places proper worship at the heart of this passage. All of these verses relate to continuing to trust in the Lord. Think for just a second. Israel had seen God awesomely rescue them from Egypt. They might feel like they are now free and as a result do not need the Lord. Their biggest problem is solved. But God continued to lead them and to provide for them. And he did it in a few different ways. Firstly, he gave them leaders to teach them the law and to lead them as a nation. We're going to see in a few weeks the priesthood established 
whose job it was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people and to instruct and teach them in the law so that God has a continued presence in his, his people. And the idea is that every generation needs to be redeemed in the exact same way that they were redeemed from Egypt. As he says, the firstborn needs to be redeemed. They continue to be God's people and continue to need this redemption. And so he says, you shall not delay to offer from the fullness of your harvest, from the outflow of your presses, continue to worship because of God's abundant goodness and continue to redeem the firstborn of your sons and do the same with your oxen and the sheep. Recognize God has rescued you and God continues to be your redeemer in every generation. These rules remind us that the whole point of all of God's law is that we must worship the one true God. He is our redeemer, our savior. In, these, in the middle of these laws about justice, God reminds us that this is all about coming into his presence for worship. And there is no place to become so passionate about the poor or social justice that we forget the God who redeems us. For us as believers, this is a precious reminder that we need to keep the gospel of Jesus at the center of our lives. And we do that partly by seeking him in the scriptures, partly by seeking him in prayer, partly by gathering for for corporate worship as we have today, partly by telling others about Jesus and inviting them to be baptized, but especially through communion. As we remember, the cost of our redemption was the precious blood of Christ. As we seek to obey the Lord and live lives that are dedicated to him and consecrated to him. We can never forget that we were redeemed to come into his presence. In the midst of our work to obey the Lord, we must worship him and enjoy his presence. The constant danger is that we would turn either to the right or to the left. That we would, on the one hand, maybe be tempted to worship idols falsely, and so we would leave our source of life. Or, if we avoid that danger and understand the threat that it poses, we might go to the other extreme and become smug with a sense of self-righteousness because we can follow these commands on our own. But to love and follow the Lord... We must both obey his commands and love worshiping him. This is at the heart of all of his laws. So this is the center of our passage today. The last section returns to the theme of doing justice and loving mercy. And so let's look verses verses 1 through 9 of chapter 23 and return to the topic of loving the poor because we have learned what it means to love the God who redeemed us. Scripture continues, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many who do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. 
Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God's passion for justice is shown when he insists that you not favor the crowd or the poor. His rules and laws apply equally to everyone. And, and someday when we, when we study Leviticus, somebody asked me in Sunday school, I think somewhat nervously, are we doing that soon? Um, the answer is no, not terribly soon. Maybe not for a few years. But someday when we study Leviticus, you can see that God ensures that the poor are always able to make sacrifices so that cost is never an issue in worshiping God. But when it comes to justice, the poor are not allowed to break the law without consequence. God says, and you may remember this earlier, where the law is about restitution, you have the same standard for everyone. And God warns against the temptation to harden your heart so that you go with the majority regardless of what's true and right, or having a heart that's so seemingly compassionate, you pervert justice and become unfair to someone who has more in an attempt to be compassionate to someone who has committed a crime. He says, do not pervert justice. Do not pervert justice in court and do not pervert justice in private even for those that you would call your enemies, even for those who openly hate you, you are to have compassion on them and to help them. And again, he ends this passage saying, do not oppress foreigners. Now, as we think about how these laws apply directly to us within the church, again, they may seem random, but what it comes down to is this. If we want to worship God and enjoy his presence, We must love our neighbors as ourselves. It demands sexual purity. It demands loving other people by not taking what is theirs, being honest, being generous. And there is no place for neglecting your neighbor, even if your neighbor is your enemy, and then coming to worship God as if you could do that while you hate your fellow man. John says if you try that, You're a liar. You cannot say I love God and hate your brother whom you have seen. Now here's the reality. As we see the law of God, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, all of us have failed in some way. I I don't know if you have noticed this. It is really, really hard to love people. Some people are are like us and, and we find them easy to love. But the less they're like us, sometimes the harder they are to love. All of us have failed this in some way. And, to be honest, we don't always want to worship God. The heart of this message is is that's the most important thing. And many times, we don't have a heart to do it. And so as we look at these laws, my hope is that we would remember that we can see God's heart here. You can appreciate His tender compassion. And because of that, It would be an invitation for us to love him more, to know that he is a God who loves the weak. And as I as I close. 
I have one other way that I, that I believe would be very helpful as we think through this. All of us have failed in some way. But the reality is, Jesus Christ did not fail in any way. Jesus Christ kept all the law for all of us, and he did what we could not do. More specifically, he loved us while we were still sinners. And he loved us when we had no reason for him to do that. We were the ones who hated him. And in the middle of that, he died for us. And as we might think about foreigners and sojourners, think of this for a second. Jesus is Jewish. It doesn't matter what your nationality is, if you're white, if you're black, all of us would be considered foreigners in Israel. And Jesus Christ loved us as foreigners so much that his blood is available for each of us. The scripture says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The godly for the ungodly, that he might bring us to God. We broke the law and deserved its full penalty. He kept the law and took that penalty for us. The scripture says, though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor. We are poor and needy. We had no way to provide for ourselves. And Jesus loved us and gave himself for us. So the first thing to do is to recognize where we fit in this passage. We are not the heroes. We are the people that need this kind of compassionate love. And God gave it to us. In a moment, we'll remember communion. As we think about the worship that God commanded and the redemption of the firstborn, we still remember how Jesus redeemed us through his body and blood. And I want to invite you to do that in just a moment. But before I do, the second thing that I believe that we have to understand from a text like this is God's heart for the poor has not changed. We cannot claim that we are right with God and then not care about the needy in our communities. And so one of the things that I rarely mention in this service is our benevolence ministry. In first service, every month, we take a second offering after we have communion. In this, in this service, we don't take an offering as part of the service, and so it's, it's harder to deliberately and consciously give to our benevolence ministry. And some of you may not even know it exists. But we as a church provide food for people who need it, and we also provide assistance if you have a shutoff notice or if you have an eviction notice. And that happens as people give specifically designated to benevolence. So if you give online, there's a drop-down menu for where you would like your money to go. If you would like to contribute to the needs of the poor in our community, that's one way to do it. Now, here's the thing. It's not the easiest way to do it. The easiest way to do it is when you see someone in need to open your wallet and give to them or to take time and get to know them and help them in a personal way. And as we remember what Jesus did for us, the one who was rich and for our sake became poor, let me encourage you to do the same for other people. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you loved us so much while we were sinners that you sent your Son. 
and your passion for justice was never put aside. While we were yet sinners, you sacrificed your own son in our place for us. Lord, I ask that we would never forget your incredible love for us. And Lord, I pray that you would teach our hearts to sing your praises. I ask that you would help us to appreciate your kindness and generosity. Help us to know your compassion in an incredible way, Lord. For those who are burdened with guilt, Father, I ask that you would help them to know that your compassion extends to them. Your compassion is for anyone who calls and asks for it. And I ask that you would help us to rest in your tender love. I thank you so much for the provision of Jesus, for his body and for his blood, that it never fails, that it's always enough, and that you are faithful and just to forgive us. So we want to thank you and praise you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.